have a new nonprofit and I need to open a bank account for my organization, but I can't find a bank that will open a checking account for my nonprofit. The bank is asking for documents that don't exist for nonprofits. I've been going to smaller community banks, so I'm wondering if that's why I'm running into problems. What should I do? <laughs> I think that's why you're running into problems. I think you've answered your own question on this one. So you're right. When you're, you know, depending on what bank you go to, you're like, you say, I'd like to open a checking account. And then they ask you a whole bunch of things. And the normal list of things to open a business checking account may include things that you just don't have. Like you the, don't make any sense for nonprofit at all. And if the person that you're talking to is trying to just follow the checklist, which in many cases they are, you're stuck. You're never going to get a whole lot farther. Um, I, again, we say this with a lot of questions. I wish you told me exactly what it was they asked you for, because some things you probably do need. Like one thing that they may say is, can you give us your Dunn's number, which is like a, a number that you get from Dunn and Bradstreet that is theoretically can keep track of things that money that you've borrowed and your checking account balances and things like that so that it makes it easier to get a loan down the road or sometimes vendor vendors once you're done's number things like that that's absolutely something you can get it doesn't cost you any money i don't think um so that's something you can get and just because you haven't heard of it doesn't mean that it's not something you don't have so depending on what they asked you for yes it might be something random that's not specific to you like please send me please show me um the owners of the business right <laughs> and and it's totally legitimate in these cases because you'll get this from vendors too. So say you're, you know, you're trying to get to a vendor, you don't want to pay them right away. You want to, you want to open an account so you can pay later and they'll send you like a vendor registration form. And the thing on the vendor registration form, that's always on there, this like owner of the business and like what percentage does the owner own? And if you're a nonprofit, you legitimately get to write on that thing. Yeah. I'm aging myself because I'm sure it's all like, um, online now. <laughs> but what we used to do is we would write across the thing is like NA nonprofit, no owners, right? And you put that and you can send it in and you, they can decide whether or not they want to offer you credit or not based on that. Um, but if that's what the bank's asking for, if they're asking you to submit a certificate of ownership, just write not applicable. We're a nonprofit. And either they'll let you open a checking account or they won't. Um, you probably, um, back to the what you said is it's you're going to small community banks. You may have better luck going to one of the sort of the big three national banks because they've seen nonprofits. They have checking accounts for nonprofits all the time. They may actually have a separate form for nonprofits that has specific stuff for you as well. Um, so you might try that. And I think the underscore of what you said is doing a little bit of research on the bank, like who, especially, you know, there's different bank fees for different types of accounts. So you may just want to do a quick little look at the ones you do want to go to, what are their requirements, rules, fees, all of that should be online, right? Um, just to kind of find the one that's the right fit for you. Um, there, you know, all of that stuff is, I think, just stuff that's overlooked, but that might be important. I know some organizations actually even choose to go to banks that may be more charitably inclined. Um, you know, all banks, we've talked about this before, right? They've got different, um, you know, requirements, um, CRA requirements and other things, but they also have sometimes charitable arms or marketing arms too. So, so thinking about this, um, and I know sometimes it's like, okay, we don't have time to do research. So if you don't have time, then I guess you pick the best one you think, but um, to your point, Andy, I think all of that, I mean, and what I've seen is common is 
Sometimes they ask for your bylaws, your articles of incorporation, right? A copy of your EIN. So those are types of things I've also seen sometimes board member, um, like government issued ID cards, like driver, whatever, driver's license, whatever it is. So like, I've, it all depends and the, on the bank, but um, don't give up because I know something like this feels like it's so simple and you're like, why is this so difficult? And there are banks who can meet your needs out there, I promise. Nonprofit government. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. Welcome to Nonprofit Everything, the podcast where hosts Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding answer your questions about all things nonprofit. Welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. I'm Andy Strict. I'm here with Stacy Wedding, and we're here to answer pretty much whatever you come up with. Send us questions, and we will answer them. That's kind of how this works. Um, in addition to questions, uh, one of the things that we'd love to do is expand the reach of the podcast. And one of the ways that we can do that is by um, you sharing this with other folks. And the other way is by posting reviews on wherever you found the podcast. So if you're getting it through Apple or iTunes, uh, there's a place where you can review the podcast on iTunes. If you're getting it through Google, you can do that. Um, pretty much every podcast app has some sort of way. Spotify has some sort of way to review and put a number of stars. Just do that. That would be great because that then allows us to be seen by more folks and expands the reach of the podcast so that we can get this knowledge out to everybody. And then when you ask us a question, everybody gets to hear what the answer is, which I think is is super, super fun. So we do this every two weeks. Come join us. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, we'll get right to it. Andy, here's a question for you. We are a new organization and are planning to begin fundraising soon. I know we need to spend money to make money, but as a startup, we don't have any income to work with. One of our board members suggested we take a loan out for our initial fundraising. Is this a sound approach? What would you do if you were in our shoes? That's so tough. I mean, that's that's like sort of the classic nonprofit startup problem, right? You've got this great idea. You have your novel way to solve it. And you want to come up with a completely brand new organization, but you have nothing except for passionate board members and passionate board members are not necessarily the best source of funding. Um, I think, I mean, and I hate it when we answer this way, but it really depends on what you're doing. Like the, the type of nonprofit that you're going to create, the size of the services, like what it's going to do. It's really contingent on how you get that initial seed funding. Like, so for example, if you're a performing arts center, like maybe getting a loan is a good idea if you think that you've got revenue coming in at a longer term that can pay back that loan. Like maybe that makes sense. And you probably want to put together a spreadsheet which says, here's what we need to spend. This is what we're going to bring in. This is how long we're going to take it back. Like how that whole thing's going to work. Um, I think my you know, some, from a business perspective, my initial instinct for anything is sure, take out a loan. A loan is a, just another way to get money. It's actually one of the only ways that you can get money other than from donors for a nonprofit. You can't, you can't sell stock. You can't make a profit and get people to invest in you for the profit. So you either have to convince people up front that your idea is so good that they're just going to hand you a check with absolutely nothing in return, except for potentially a good feeling if you do a good job. 
Or you need to think about like getting some kind of loan from someone. Um, bank loans, you're going to have a super tough time with because you have nothing right now. You have nothing to pay back. You have board members, but banks know that board members are never on the hook for a loan. So if the organization takes out a loan and then the organization folds and the bank doesn't get their money back, the bank's just out of luck. I mean, they could you're, they can go to court, but they're never going to win because the organization doesn't exist. Um Bankruptcy for nonprofits is not really a thing. You can't really go bankrupt as a nonprofit because what you do during bankruptcy is like try to generate cash based on how the organization works. But for a nonprofit, like the purpose of the cash is just to fund the ongoing operations and not to spin off any profit. So bankruptcy doesn't even make sense for nonprofits. So it's a hard sell for a bank loan. Um, the loans that you might be able to get would be potentially a loan from a foundation or a large funder or somebody that's going to be nice to you, who's then going to say, okay, I like your mission. I like what you're doing. And here, sure, I'll give you a loan so that you can get off your feet. Um, I think that having that conversation and convincing a funder that you're going to be competent enough to pay back a loan is probably the same level of work as convincing a funder to just give you the money. <laughs> like, so you're kind of doing the same work. Yeah. It's the exact same thing, except yeah. for one, you have to pay it back with interest. And the other thing, you've actually convinced them to give you the money straight up. And that, to be honest, is the way most brand new nonprofits start, is they come up with an idea, they put together a packet, it's really good, and they start shopping it out to people who think it's a good idea. Or alternatively, it starts with a funder who has a lot of money, who just comes up with the idea and self-funds it. But it doesn't sound like that's kind of the scenario that that you're working within. Um, always suspicious of aphorisms. You know, I know we need to spend money to make money. Anytime something sounds plausible like that and maybe potentially rhymes, I'm always like, I don't know if that's true, right? But in this case, I mean, we've seen it so many times with like fundraising. If you're going to do things like direct mail, like, you know, you're going to have to put some money out before the money comes back in. So in this case, you're you're probably right there. What do you think, Stacey? So a couple of things to add. I think there are certain kinds of fundraising that tend to be um, higher return on the investment of time. So there's like fundraising cost effectiveness tables. And I will try to find a link to one that is notable out there that might also help inform what types of approaches you use. And I also think the approach, you, so for example, direct mail, at least initially, is going to be a lot more expensive to purchase the list, and it's going to cost you more money than perhaps just friend raising with board member contacts or your own friends and family and stuff. And so you, you'll have to sort of look at, I think a chart like that might also help you think about it in a strategic and smart way of approaching it. I'm just a believer that when you're a startup, you're passionate you obviously care about this deeply enough that you created this organization, you recruited board members, whether they're doing it just because they love you or what. But like, I think leaning on that so is really big. So I, I think when I have people in my world who have come to me to really show that they care deeply about something enough that they're, they're doing this, like, and will I support their cause at the very beginning, it's going to be a lot less about the cause because there's not a lot of proof of concept, right? I'm not seeing outcomes, but I'm going to invest in that person because I believe in that person and I believe that person is on the right trajectory. So use that to your advantage. And I think being getting really comfortable with that kind of 
asking, even if it's small amounts to get started, right? Like any, any donation makes a difference. I think we get in this world of just, oh, major gifts. And when you're brand new, you're probably not going to get a major gift. Let's just be honest. But the reality is, is you can go after lots of little small gifts and those add up and then there's attention and you start to, it's just kind of like it grows. And so I'm a big believer in kind of whether it's the little house parties or your own little, I mean, I remember groups I used to work with that they would do like back when Bunko was a thing. I don't even know if Bunko is anymore. We'd have like Bunko parties at a friend's house and she'd be like, hey, I'm hosting this month's Bunko party and I just want to raise money for like this cause I care deeply about. So like you can even make it fun with sort of those ways to generate awareness and that I'm not a huge, I mean, I think, I think loans are a struggle when you're brand new for all the reasons Andy mentioned. So I'm not, unless you had a board member that had the assets and resources to help be like a non-interest bearing or very low interest bearing loan. I'm not a huge fan of you going in that direction. Um, just again, because not because loans are bad, but just because of where you're at and the likelihood of, of being able to secure it. So not a fan of that. I think the other thing I would, I would share is just, um, I really think planning gets underrated, like putting together, did you do any business planning before you set up this nonprofit? And if you haven't, maybe you need to take a step back and say, what, how are we going to generate revenue? Because this problem isn't ever going to go away, <laughs> right? Whether you're a huge organization or a small organization, you're still always trying to figure out how to do revenue. You're just at a different stage right now. So like, what is your plan? And if you don't have the expertise or your board doesn't, this is where maybe you lean on if you have, you know, um, nonprofit education groups, not, you know, AFP chapters, uh, people in the fundraising profession that are probably willing to help out say, hey, can I pick your brain or can you come and I'm going to treat us to lunch like with a group of us to help us brainstorm some things we could do. Like there's ways to do it, but I think putting some kind of plan in place so you aren't going to be scattered all over the place. Um, the other thing is if you have board members who potentially have businesses that like if they owned a business, for example, you see this a lot with restaurants, right? Where they say, hey, we're going to support XYZ charity for, you know, uh, per this percent of revenue that comes in this day or whatever. Like maybe that's a way to leverage board members and, and think about those kinds of things. So it's not a ton of manpower on your side. There's always other downsides to that. But but ultimately, like finding that kind of third party event source might be another vehicle for you to look at. Um, but again, I, I don't like a shotgun approach to this. I feel like you've got to kind of look at where are our strengths, where are our resources, where are our connection points, and let's build from there to be smart about this. And so if if you don't have board members that have businesses, then that's probably, and you don't have relationships with anyone who owns a business that has clientele coming and purchasing things, then maybe that's a bad idea. So like, I think it's all unique to your organization. Yeah. I mean, I think you're exactly right that this is never a problem that goes away. This is something that you're going to be dealing with forever. So now's a good time to figure it out. Like the money doesn't just magically appear once you've been around for five years. It just means that you may have professional staff that's helping steer that those conversations and identify who those donors are and manage programs and things like that. Um, but the the the, it, the the core of it still is that the money needs to come in to fund the mission. And so if you haven't had that figured out, I mean, I would say 
potentially, this is one of the things you need to figure out before you decide to start a nonprofit is, is this particular cause interesting enough to get money from donors? If not, how are we going to get the money, right? Because we know that donors are fickle and they will give to things that aren't necessarily the best things only because they just sort of feel a particular way about that cause. Um, in, in every nonprofit, there's always, uh, th there's always something that you're doing that you're like, well, we probably aren't going to get anybody to fund this, but we need to do it anyway. Right. But figuring out what those things that people will fund and identifying that on the front end before you start, you know, having expenses is a really important thing to do. And I think one final thought is that if you can buy yourself time, and I know it sounds like you obviously got to get the money in the door, and maybe this goes back to that temporary loan or that that thing to help get some of your basic expenses covered. But if you could have your first year, if you're able to start delivery of some of your services the first year, so you can actually have something to talk about and stories to share and like, then you, then you have a jumping off point for year two, right? So if you're able to do a few things, even if they're small things the first year, you have a jumping off point to say, we are serious, we're legit, not like, hey, invest in us before we've done a thing, right? Like, and you just hope we're going to do something. You've got a little bit of like, this is some of what we're doing and we want to do more of it and you can help us. And so that's that seed money. Even if your board members can give a little bit of money and ask their friends and family, like whatever, like figuring out how you get that money so you can actually deliver some of this or do it volunteer wise the first year. And then the second year you start to go raise the money because now you actually have something to talk about instead of just an idea. Recently, our board got into a debate over an issue, and it turns out that after some research, we learned our bylaws did not support state laws. Beyond this specific issue, it raised a larger question that we're hoping you can answer. Do bylaws supersede state law for an organization or vice versa? So in essence, your organization's bylaws need to meet state law. That's the really down and dirty short answer, right? So that's the first checkbox is like at a minimum, they have to do that. Now, I've seen a lot of organizations that actually make their bylaws more restrictive than state law or more complicated than state law. And that's absolutely acceptable as long as that state law is being met. So like you'll see this state requires a minimum of X number of board members and these types of officer positions or this state doesn't allow you know, virtual, you know, whatever, like minors to serve on a board or whatever that state law is. So that's kind of rule number one when you're doing bylaws, which is oftentimes why people hire attorneys because attorneys, you know, tend to geek out about that stuff and can find that stuff. Although you can find it too, where you just sort of look and say, okay, what are the bare minimum state thresholds. And Andy and I both can say this, like, I think when you look across the country, there's some states that are really kind of like almost absent with many laws around this. So you have a ton of flexibility. And then there's other states that are a lot more rigorous with the state laws around what you can and can't do or how like the board needs to be structured and minimum number of meetings a year and that kind of thing. So I just really think, again, this is where you could absolutely do this by going, you know, to the proper websites for your state to look at it 
you know, secretary of state oftentimes, and, you know, you can just type in whatever, like, by, you know, laws or, you know, state laws for charitable organizations or nonprofit organizations in X state, right? Like it, it'll pull you up the right websites and stuff, but like just really kind of doing that first, or at least making sure that you're, you're aware of those. And if you don't want to do it, then maybe you have someone on your board who is an attorney, or maybe you know somebody else, but definitely need to make sure you're in compliance with that. I wish this question had an example, because I want to see what the, I want to see what it is that you're not complying with, not, not to make fun of you really, but just to kind of see, because, because here's the, the sort of the weirdest answer to this one is that because every state has different laws about nonprofit corporations and how they're supposed to be set up and how they're supposed to operate. And like Stacy said, some of them are really prescriptive and say, here's exactly what you need to do. And others are super loosey goosey. And they're like, you need to have a board and they need to meet. Right. And so it, depending on what it is, the state law, it could be written in a really stupid way. It could say something like you need three board members. Right. And which then you could say, well, do you really mean I need three board members? Do, do you mean I need a minimum of three board members? Because that's different. And so if you're not necessarily complying with state law because it's badly written, I would say that's probably not an issue. Nobody's the, and to be, to be fair, the attorney generals of the states go after nonprofits for bylaw compliance, like 0.00001% of their time. They've got better stuff to do. And to be honest, they're chasing lots of people who are doing really bad things with under the umbrella of being a nonprofit, like just calling people, taking money and then spending it on themselves and doing all kinds of scams. So which is one reason why we have the 990 and why it's so complicated and why we have charitable solicitation registration statements and why that's a pain in the butt. Um, so the AG is not going to come after you if you're doing it wrong. I'd say like the you need to make sure that you're complying, just like Stacy said, but for me personally, I wouldn't go much beyond what the requirement is. I think the bylaws need to be an absolute minimum standard because you want to make sure you're complying with them. You don't want to accidentally write something that says um, we need to be doing this one particular thing. We need to have nine board members at least at all times. And then you're out of compliance when you have eight. Um, you want to say that we're going to meet the minimum standard and have three. That's going to be in our bylaws. But we know we're really going to have nine. Right. And that doesn't have to be in the bylaws. That can just be sort of an unwritten rule that the board follows. Um, so just the when you have an audit, the auditors are going to look at the bylaws and compare reality to your bylaws. So you don't want to make them too hard because then you'll get an audit finding that you're not following your bylaws, which sounds really terrible and scary, but could just be dumb. Right. It could be, well, you know, we said we had to send it by fax machine, but nobody has a fax machine anymore. So we just forgot to change the bylaws. So I wouldn't be super worried about it. But to Stacy's point, yeah, you have to meet the state's minimum standard 100% of the time. Okay. I always have to come back when Andy says something that I agree or disagree with. So <laughs> I hope it's agree I, this time. Uh, and this kind of reminds <laughs> me, Andy, of remember the episode when, and, you know, we talked about minutes and I was like, yeah, I think you need to have a little bit yep. more meat in your minutes. Yep. And you're like, no, no bare minimum. Zero and I'm, I'm, I'm noticing this trend with you because now you're like, yeah, bare minimum bylaws. Um, I would err on, I, okay, I've seen bylaws that are 20 pages and those scare me and like no one is going to be able to find anything in those. And I've seen bylaws that are like two pages and that scares me too. Um, I, I go back into the middle of it. Like I do think, I mean, obviously you don't want to make these so complicated, like you said, that it is onerous and you just end up 
pardon my friend, screwing yourself because you've made them so complicated. And like someone could argue that maybe they are in violation of state law. But I do think there is some degree of structure, protocol, um, ter- you know, basic things, you know, here's terms. Do we believe, do we have term limits for officers, for directors? What do we do if a board member is absent for however many meetings with no notice? I think I think you've got to have, and that all is oftentimes more than what a state law requires. And so like, I think you want some of those guiding agreements and principles of how you are going to operate as a board to keep you all centered and focused. Otherwise, what I've seen, and I, and I think all of that can then be supported with policies and other things that like help take things further than you need to get into detail and description and bylaws, right? But I want to know if I'm on a board, like, I just want to know, are we following our by Like, do we have, like, I just had an organization I work with that was like, oh, shoot, like, we forgot to elect officers. Oh, dear. Like, we're not following our bylaws. Like, we, they were, their term was up. And I mean, no, are they probably going to get, is someone going to come after them from attorney general? No. But it also sent a message to their fellow board members that they, like, the the organization isn't really paying attention to this this thing that should be at your fingertips at a board meeting to make sure you you all have these agreed upon shared you know sort of protocols and that you're following them at least to the basics so i'd probably take it a little step above you andy i don't think like i love when i see bylaws that can hit I don't know. And I don't want to make this page prescriptive because that's dangerous, right? But like when I can see them five or six pages, I'm like, okay, they're robust enough that like we've got all the bare bones meat in there without getting too detailed. Um, But, you know, anyways, there's no right or wrong with this. This is just, again, our opinions and from what we've seen. I love it when uh, we disagree. And and can I say this, Andy? Wait, wait, one more thing. I am scared about you saying, because I agree with you. When have I've never heard of an attorney general going after an organization for not following their bylaws? But I am also nervous about you saying that because I don't want anybody listening to think, great, now we don't have to like pay attention to our bylaws. Like, there's a reason bylaws exist. So, like, otherwise we wouldn't have them. So, if you're going to have them, then you probably should follow them. And there you have it. So but you disagree. So let me know. But let me just ask, because this is an education podcast, right? This is supposed to we're supposed to be helping people. I know we thought this was going to be a short question, but it turns out it's going to yes. be a much longer question because I want to ask you, Stacey, what what are bylaws for? Why do we have them? What are they supposed to achieve? I mean, they provide the structure. They are like the. They are like the operating manual for the board of directors. So they are a governance structure, a governance manual, and there's some, they need to be updated. They need to be reviewed and updated, you know, on a regular basis. And that's why I don't think they get too detailed because otherwise you're going to be updating them all the time because boards change and things change. So that's why I'm like, I think policies are in unison with bylaws, but some general structural do we as an organization believe in term limits? Do we as an organization want to handle, how do we handle 
removal? Is it by cause or like, can we just remove a board member to remove them? Or does there have to be cause? Like some big things that I think could be liability issues as well for the organization. Like I see it as a protective mechanism if they're being followed. So push back. Tell me, tell me the other side. No, no, I agree with you. I agree a hundred percent. (laughs) So I think, I think what I've seen is, and I agree that there's probably a sweet spot in between too detailed and not enough detail because you're like, I, I think my, my, my reason for having bylaws is exactly the same as yours. It's the operating system for the organization. And it's the thing that you're going to go to. If there is a disagreement, it's kind of like a contract. If you have a contract with somebody, the contract spells out exactly how it's supposed to work. So it needs to include everything that could potentially happen. And that's what the board, the bylaws are supposed to do as well. They're supposed to include everything that could potentially happen. Like, so exactly term limits. Do we have them? How long are they? I think where my, um, my difficulty with like verbose bylaws comes in or ones that are overly prescriptive are when you've written them in such a way that it then becomes impossible to figure out what you really meant. So like, for example, if you say that um, your board has a term limit, so board officers have a term of one year, which can be renewed once. What does that mean? Does that mean that they can have a two year and then it gets renewed once or does that one year and then it get renewed one time? Like it gets confusing unless you are really, really clear about board terms are one year, right? Period. Like, can you be reelected? Yes or no. How many times can you be reelected? And so you have to be really clear about what those kinds of things mean. And when you try to like come up with things that are um, overly complicated, it becomes difficult to comply with them because they're written in a in that really annoying sort of bylaw language, you know, because 100 percent of the time you had an attorney look at it and they added a whereas in it somewhere. Right. They've, they've put in extra attorney words totally. that you don't need. And so it becomes difficult to interpret them. And so you don't actually know if you're complying with them or not because they're written in such a weird way. So so I agree. I totally agree. They need to have all of the information that they need to have. They need to be accurate. But I would say that they need to be sort of concise and that you should, in my opinion, you shouldn't put anything in there that doesn't have to be in there. Like if it has to be in there, like all the things you said absolutely have to be in there, but it shouldn't have anything that doesn't have to be in there. Mm-hmm. No, I would. I would agree with that. And yeah, I like your point about the fact that bylaws that are poorly written, probably that's more what you and I have both seen in our work. (laughs) And they make me cringe. (laughs) And and I will, no disrespect to the attorneys listening or, or attorney board members, but I will also say you oftentimes get someone who says, oh, like we have such and such attorney on our board, right? who has no specialty at all in like business law, in writing bylaws, has never done that. Maybe they're like an intellectual property attorney. And so then like they send it to their staff and no, like you get these really crappy bylaws uh, out of it. So don't think just because you have an attorney, like, right, that it's going to be great bylaws. Like I have seen some of the worst bylaws written by attorneys who don't specialize in that, you know, in the area. And so- I think some of it is just like bylaws. I think people overcomplicate them. It's like, yeah, what are the rules of how we're going to operate and do do business as an organization, as a board, like that are going to be governed? And 
let's put those in there. And do we need to, I mean, I would love to like have a podcast on, do we need all this like legalese? I mean, I think people just like, I think people feel like it's more formal and official, but to your point, then it gets confusing. And it's like, what exactly was this clause? Exactly. It's like every time I see the word, whereas my brain just shuts off. I'm like, that's not even a word. Uh That's not even a word. That wraps up another episode of Nonprofit Everything. So thankful for you, our loyal listeners or first-time listeners, whatever you are, we welcome you and we love you. You are what make this podcast a reality and we're endlessly grateful for you. Uh, We hope you've gained some, maybe some new knowledge, some new strategies, maybe some inspiration, and if not, some really good laughs after this episode. We always try to keep it light uh, and try to, you know, inject our quirky senses of humor or personalities in it. And uh, Andy and I have fun with this too. Hopefully you can sense that energy. One of the ways you can really help us is through a review, you know, giving us stars, sharing, you know, a couple of words about what you think about the podcast. And we're going to include that in the show notes so that you have easy access. It's just one stop and it should take you just less than 30 seconds. It will help us to have others like you join us and find us because we want to just spread the the love to all of our nonprofit superheroes out there. So until next time, stay passionate and be the change maker you are. We really appreciate you. Thanks. Mm-hmm.